I'm not an idiot. I know how the world works. I've got ten bucks in my pocket. I have nothing to offer you, and I know that. I understand. But I'm too involved now. You jump, I jump, remember? I can't turn away without knowing you'll be all right. That's all that I want. Well, I'm fine. I'll be fine. Really. A poor boy and a rich girl fall in love on a ship that was supposed to be unsinkable. Join us as we chat about me blowing it on a date, setting up fictional grandchildren for life, and Taylor Swift going for an EGOT. My heart will go on as we find out if Titanic stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to a gargantuan and enormous regular-sized episode, but it's about Titanic. And joining me, as always, is my buddy, my pal, the director of this episode and all the episodes, Mr. Alan Noah. And you know what else I am, James? Um, You are a triathlon athlete. That's true, but I was going to say, I'm king of the world! Oh, yeah, 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 that's what uh, both Leonardo DiCaprio... And Mr. James Cameron were quoted as saying. He said that when he won the Oscar. Right, right, right. I just felt like I wanted to say that. Just right out of the gate, I'm glad that you agreed to talk about Titanic with me. Were you like, nah, you didn't want to watch it? No, I'll tell you that there was this weird uh, pushback to Titanic. I'd say in a couple years after the insane uh, obsession uh, people had with it. But I think it stems from the fact that uh, it it had won so many Academy Awards and people noted it. It did not win acting uh, awards. Uh, Kate Winslet was nominated and so was uh, Gloria Stewart. But uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was not nominated and the screenplay was not nominated. Mm. So for years people were saying, oh, visually great and the, the score is great. The screenplay and the dialogue were terrible. And I do remember that Titanic is just more of a visual and the story kind of film. So I remember seeing it a couple times in theaters because uh, my younger sister, Amanda, who's been on the show before, she was like, I guess, like nine and turning 10 when this came out. And she had her 10th birthday party to see Titanic. And it was like her fifth time. She was obsessed with it. So I'd seen it a couple times. She used to stay up every night. And was I remember it was VH1, not MTV. Okay. But she would wait up every night for the top 10. And it was always number one. She waited for My Heart Will Go On uh, because she would see some clips from Titanic. Okay, so to answer your question, um, no, this wasn't a hard sell. I haven't seen this film in uh, easily 20 years, but um, I enjoyed when I saw it 20 years ago. I hadn't really had an opportunity to see it again. Uh, it was definitely cool with watching it. The, like almost three hour length, that was the one thing I was like, I'm going to have to find time for it. So when yeah. you said we're going to be doing Titanic, you, you, you told it to me a few weeks ago. I actually did watch it a couple weeks ago when I did have like a Saturday afternoon. I'm like, all right, I'm not going to be interrupted. I'm not going to fall asleep. It deserves uh, to, to watch it straight through. But what about you? Did you not want to see it or did you have any hesitation? No, I mean, I wanted to see it because I push for 
movies that have anniversaries on the podcast. Didn't we do like the 25th anniversary of like Coyote Ugly and like Stay Tuned and Three Ninjas and like some really random movies. So I was like, okay, when it's the 25th anniversary of Titanic, we have to. And I use have to in air quotes because it's just you and me. We don't have to do anything. We can do whatever the hell we want. It's our podcast. But I was like, we really should. And similar to you, I was annoyed about the runtime of like, when am I going to find three plus hours to watch this movie? I did a little Googling. This is not the longest movie we've ever done on the podcast. Can you guess what the longest movie is? Um, Was it like Chariots of Fire? No, that was one of those movies that seemed really long, but actually <laughs> wasn't. The first couple movies that came to mind that were really long were Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which was two hours and 58 minutes. Dances with Wolves, which is three hours and one minute. Goodfellas is pretty long, right? Uh, that's like, I think, a little over two hours. Pearl Harbor is three hours and four minutes. Wow. Titanic is three hours, 14. Godfather Part 2 is three hours and 22 minutes. So eight minutes longer than Titanic. So that was longer. But this is a long movie. And like you, I wanted to see this movie like all in one shot, but I couldn't. I'm just too damn busy. And I rented this movie not on DVD from the library, but on Blu-ray. Because, you know, this is the kind of movie that you want to watch on the big, big screen. Like, if it's on DVD, sometimes I watch it down here in my basement on the 42-inch TV, which is fine. But for Titanic, the James Cameron movie, I was like, this has to be on the 70-inch upstairs, the surround sound. I got it on Blu-ray. For whatever reason, the Blu-ray wasn't working. It wasn't anything wrong with my player. It was just that particular Blu-ray. So I had to rent it on Amazon. You know, when you rent a movie from Amazon, it gives you 48 hours to like finish the rental. It was close, James. I was really, really close to having to rent it twice because I started it on one night. I forget which night it was. And then I was like kind of busy the next day. I had to break it up into three chunks. And like on the last chunk, as I was finishing it up, I was like, I really hope the credits take up like 10 of these minutes. Otherwise, it might kick me out. But I was able to just barely get it in under the 48 hours. Wasn't it streaming? It's not on Paramount Plus or Hulu because it was a joint venture between Paramount and Fox. Oh. So it's not on either one of them. Um, when you were talking about when you first saw Titanic, you saw it because of your sister Amanda. I first saw Titanic on a date, a double date. Actually, it was a double blind date. The other guy who was on the date was friend of the show, Eddie Perez-Cortez. Uh, he was on a date with a girl that he was hoping to hook up with. And then she brought along a friend for me. And the date, I thought, went fine. We seemed to get along that night. Nothing ever happened. I think she, like, got back together with her ex-boyfriend, like, right after she and I went on that date. So... I guess it wasn't that great of a date. You blew it. I guess I did. I really did. But I do remember after that movie ended, Eddie and I going to the bathroom and just peeing for a really, really, really long time. Because like, you know, three plus hours, that's a long time. Yeah. And Reel.com, R-E-E-L, like, like you know, movie reel. They were doing a huge launch campaign, which was they were selling the Titanic, of course, it was VHS, and it was the double VHS, and it was $9.99, which was huge. Like, wow, everyone else is going to pay $19.99 or $24 or $25. Bucks. And this as a launch, uh, you know, wound up being one of those famous dot-coms, I think, went away in a, a year or two. 
Uh, and we got that one for my sister. So okay. we had the double VHS. Your sister didn't own it or you didn't own it? I definitely didn't. I don't know if my sister did. I don't think she was really into it. Not like your sister Amanda was. I don't think she was ever obsessed. I mean, she was obsessed. Amanda had an album. This booklet had like pictures of Leonardo DiCaprio that she'd cut out of magazines. <laughs> it would have printouts of like the Titanic logo in Japanese. And like, she thought it was so cool to see it in like other languages. <laughs> and I hope she still has this album. It was adorable. <laughs> and I don't know if she wrote like Amanda Dawson in it or something, but uh, all of her friends had a crush on him. And then it kind of became a thing. Who's seen it more? You know, we, we did that at one point with like, you know, Star, Star Wars, Wars movies, yeah. right? The, the special edition release how many times did you see it in theaters and yeah it was kind of a competition gotcha yeah i think amanda was more of a kind of conventional like four or five <laughs> but there were people in her class that had seen it like every weekend and it was insane we'll talk about the box office in a second but one of the things that helped titanic at the box office was repeat viewings and people just kept going to see it over and over and over again which was surprising for you know a three plus hour movie but let's just give our listeners a little recap of the movie in case you forgot. This movie is about the Titanic and it sinks. Yeah, that, that pretty much summarizes the film. No, no, no. There's more to it than that. So Titanic is director James Cameron's epic telling of the ill-fated luxury liner which sank on its maiden voyage. When a treasure hunter is searching the wreck of the RMS Titanic for a lost necklace, he winds up finding an old portrait drawn on the night of the ship's sinking. After contacting the now elderly woman, Rose, she recalls her tale of adventure, love, and loss aboard the doomed ship. Rose boarded the ship with her rich fiancé, Cal Hockley. Rose doesn't love Cal and is only marrying him under intense pressure from her mother so they will be able to afford the luxurious lifestyle they've grown accustomed to. Rose, fearing a miserable future, decides to jump off Titanic. Hesitating on the edge of the ship, she is interrupted by Jack Dawson, a poor boy who won his ticket to Titanic in a poker game. Jack saves Rose, and the two begin a brief but intense love affair. Rose sneaks off with Jack repeatedly, and they are together when the ship hits an iceberg. Rose has a chance to get on a lifeboat, but she refuses to leave her new love. After the ship sinks, Rose is able to stay afloat on a door that only has room for one, maybe debatable, so she lives even though Jack dies of hypothermia in the cold ocean. So Obviously, I'm not going to ask you, was this a big hit at the box office? Because I know and you know, and I think a lot of people know that this was the number one movie in the world ever, I think until Avatar, right? Right. And then briefly, do you know what overtook Avatar? Infinity War, right? No, close. Endgame? Yeah, it was Endgame. Okay. And then they re-released uh, Avatar and it, it made like, you know, 50 million bucks more. Right. Um, and there was a movie a couple years before Titanic came out. I believe it was 1995. A movie I'm sure you've seen. We're going to review it. A movie called Waterworld. Oh, yeah. And what is the one word that was in the zeitgeist of uh, Waterworld, at least at the time when it came out? Well, you're thinking either of expensive or flop. Right. Both of those. Okay. And it was a massively, it was a massive misfire. Right. You know, it's got Kevin Costner. It's got the director of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and Dennis Hopper. But apparently, uh, I think it puttered out a profit eventually years later. But 
the media loves the epic flop of the year. It still happens. Cats was a huge, notorious misfire, cost $100 million. Right. And this was going to be another one. And James Cameron had, had five or six uh, real big films, the Terminator films, Aliens and uh, The Abyss. And he's done very well for himself. And this is a $200 million film. It's going over budget. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to be released in July of 97, right. delayed to December 97. Almost always not a good sign. James Cameron, he's now given up his director's salary, of course, for a piece. If it makes a huge amount of money, and of course, uh, we, we know how it turns out, the media was waiting for it to be a huge flop. And of course, as we know, this film was not a flop. But this was not, a, you know, one of these uh, Endgame that broke the opening weekend box office record and then just went on to make a staggering billion dollars. Now, this movie opened, it opened at number one on December 19th, 1997, but it opened with $28 million. It wound up grossing $600 million domestically. Wow. And we always talk about this uh, multiplier. That's a 21 times multiplier. You said it before. Not only did every person in America see this, but multiple people saw it more than once. That's how you get a Gone with the Wind, a Star Wars, an E.T. That's how you get these things. You get repeat viewing. And it was just a phenomenon. This was number one for 15 consecutive weeks. And it was number one more than 15 weeks, but 15 consecutive weeks. It just never stopped. And it was the biggest thing. It won all the Oscars. It was Titanic. You know, they used every pun that that they could. And just an enormous phenomenon. There's not much more you could say that's not true about how big this film was. Right. When did you see it first? When's Amanda's birthday? A man's birthday is in January, but uh, I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theaters before her. I, I'm almost positive that was not my first time. That was probably my second time seeing it. Really? I don't think I saw it in December. I'll have to ask Eddie if he remembers. This was like the end of the winter semester at college, and I can't imagine we saw it like on a double date, like during finals. I'm guessing it was like January, February. But I don't really remember. I mean, eventually you got around to it because also, you know, before the Oscars, I mean, every critic was saying this is four stars. This is the best film of the year. It's going to sweep everything. And it did. Right, right. This film could have been done so many different ways. I mean, it's the Titanic. I could see Michael Bay doing this film. I mean, oh, God. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> like like he had done uh, Pearl Harbor. And uh, James Cameron was the one who had the uh, vision to do this. Apparently, after getting uh, some money to film uh, the Titanic, which had only been found in the 80s, by the way. Oh, really? Um, yeah, when we were kids. It was like this mythological thing for like 80 years. Like, they'll never find it. And people looked for it for years. Well, James Cameron was just interested in finding the footage. Like he's obsessed with the ocean and obsessed with submersibles and like looking for stuff in the ocean. And he goes down there himself to these ridiculous depths where, you know, like the pressure can crush you, right? Like that's like a hobby of his. He went down to the, uh, what's it called? The, the Marian- Marianas Trench. Yeah. It's the lowest point on earth to his credit. James Cameron went down by himself in a machine that very well could have killed him. I guess he's probably a little crazy, but he knows his stuff. If there's someone to make this film, it was James Cameron. Not only is he passionate about the ocean and history, isn't he also like an inventor? Like he like creates the 
cameras and the technology that he uses in his films. So I'm not sure if he like invented like a submersible or some kind of thing, but like he's really, really passionate about it. And apparently he was not necessarily interested in making a movie, like a scripted movie about the Titanic. Like maybe it would be like a documentary or something, but it just kind of came to him and he wanted to keep studying the Titanic and keep going on these missions to, you know, explore the actual wreckage. And so this movie was kind of like the way he could go about doing it. And that's amazing because a couple of years later, he did make those documentaries. Remember, he made, it was like yeah. Ghosts of the Deep or something. Yeah. And they made like 20 million bucks or something. But if you fictionalize it, put the James Horner soundtrack and Celine Dion and that gets 600 million domestic. Right. There's more to talk about the the cast and crew. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, of course, he was a, an acclaimed actor. He had been in, you know, What's Eating Gilbert Grape and the right. Romeo and Juliet was a big thing. This was not some unknown guy. I'd never heard of Kate Winslet before this film. But apparently, I just read this a couple weeks ago, probably for the 25th anniversary, but Leonardo DiCaprio, he almost didn't get the role because he refused to audition. Yeah, I saw that, right? And like, James Cameron's like, okay, well, if you're not going to read, bye. And he's like, well, I mean, I guess I could read a little, you know, like Leo is trying to save face. But, you know, James Cameron doesn't take any shit. He doesn't need to. And if he has a rule that you have to read for the part you're going to have to read for the fucking part. And the way he said it is he goes, I have a $200 million movie. This is my career. If I flop a $200 million film, my career is done. Uh, so I'm not chancing it on the fact that you did well for another director. Right. Uh, you know, Baz Luhrmann, you did great in uh, Romeo and Juliet. Go work with him again. He doesn't need to audition you. And similarly, do you know who almost was uh, got the role of Jack, but he refused to uh, to audition? Uh, give me a hint. Okay. He was on a 90s television show, like a high school television show, and he was the heartthrob. Mark Paul Gossler. Not that one, or dramatic uh, teenage role. Uh, someone from Degrassi? No, that would be Drake, and he was not <laughs> almost cast as Jack. <laughs> that would have been a very different movie. Very different film. Uh, another hint. This show only lasted one year, one season on ABC. Uh, my so-called life. Yes. Oh, who is in that? Oh, Jared Leto. Jared Leto. Yeah. Right. 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 Okay. So he refused to audition, and I guess he got the goodbye. Okay. You know, I, I imagine there's that probably a little cachet to a, I'm at the level where I don't need to audition. Yeah. Oh, that's very much like a, a status symbol that I don't read. Right. That is definitely a thing that like some actors can do, and if you're Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt or someone like that, yeah, you're not going to read. But like for most working actors, I would say like 95 or more percent, you got to read. Even quarterbacks have to work out sometimes. Yeah. So, um, and uh, James Horner, the late James Horner. I mean, what a fantastic composer. He did one of my favorite soundtracks, um, uh, Aliens. Like, such a great soundtrack. He's done so many. And uh, he did so well on this. It's a classic. Apparently, James Cameron did not want any songs. He didn't want any vocals because he kind of thinks that... Uh, they kind of cheapen the film. They have nothing to do with, with the film that he had been made, making. And James Horner kind of uh, secretly 
wrote it and had Celine Dion uh, record it and then played it for him. And James Cameron loved it. And, you know, he did the right thing and put it in his film. Right. And also James Horner and James Cameron worked together on Aliens, like you said, but apparently they didn't get along after that. Like they kind of had a falling out. And this was like them coming back together for the first time in however many years, 15, 20 years. And then they had a good relationship again and they decided that they were buddies and whatever fight that they had on Aliens, after Aliens, was Water Under the Bridge. And I think they worked together again on Avatar, right? I think he did Avatar. I didn't know that story, but I love that because apparently he wanted Enya to do the soundtrack first. Right, right. And uh, she turned it down. You know he comes to that eureka moment where he goes, I know who the best person is. I'm going to have to apologize for that thing in 1987, you know. Right. You know there was one of them had to make the uh, the first move, and whatever one of them did wasn't insurmountable. But right. the fact that they made such a good product, that just says a lot about them. Right, right, right. There's a recent uh, news about Celine Dion. Um, yeah. She apparently has this uh, neurological condition. Uh, I don't know much about this rare disease, but uh sounds pretty uh, awful. I wish her the best. Look, I'm not a huge Celine Dion fan, never was, but yeah, very, very sad uh, thing that, that she's going through. And this song, My Heart Will Go On, was just inescapable. It was everywhere. It got to the point where if you were like me and didn't really like the song and you heard like those first opening like notes on the radio, just immediately just going to change the channel because I just can't hear this fucking song fucking any fucking more and did she start the whole vegas residency thing like we're not not like a res i think like the rat pack used to be there for a while but to the point where a casino built a stadium for somebody had they ever done that before before her i'm genuinely not sure that's a good question i i don't know it's funny that's what you think of celine dion when i think of celine dion i think of anna gasteyer doing an impression of her on SNL when she was like, I am Celine Dion, the greatest singer in the world. That was like her quote unquote catchphrase. But let's get into the movie itself. I remembered the whole thing where it takes place in the present of 1997 and you have uh, Bill Paxton like doing the explorer thing and he's looking for Titanic. So I guess he's like supposed to be like a James Cameron surrogate, basically, like he's playing kind of that role of a person who's really interested in the Titanic. I keep saying the Titanic in the movie, Bill Paxton and a lot of other people just say Titanic, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But I didn't remember just how long it was in the beginning of the movie. It's like 20 something minutes before you get to 1912, where most of the movie takes place. And I thought that they could have moved that part along for this three-plus-hour movie. Also, um, I'm going to make some critiques of this movie. That's what we do on the podcast. Obviously, I know that James Cameron doesn't give a shit about me and my opinion and what I'm saying. He's the king of the box office and king of the world and everything. But I felt like you could have cut some minutes out of that first 20-plus-minute segment. And then... Like, he brings this woman, this old lady, Rose, to his boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. She's supposed to be 101 years old. And, like, he wants to hear her story about Titanic. Maybe he should go to her and not make a 101-year-old woman fly to the middle of the ocean, especially if this is a 101-year-old woman 
who is on the fucking Titanic that sank. Maybe she doesn't need to go to the middle of the ocean again. You know, that maybe that's traumatic for her. I watch this film and I wonder, does this film work if you completely edit out all of the present uh, film? I get what he's doing. It's a different film. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have it, but I wondered watching it this time, would the whole film work without it? And I would say yes, except for one part that is just so brilliant. And that's the part where the shots where it transitions from the shot in the early 20th century of the Titanic in its maiden voyage on its heyday. And then he's got that transition to the rusted uh, bottom of the floor graveyard. I mean, it's so haunting. And I love that transition. The back and forth with uh, Rose as an old lady, I get what he was trying to do there. I'm not sure how much I love that, but I love the inclusion of the the wreckage shot. So for that alone, I like the present uh, story. I was thinking about that exact same thing, so I came to the conclusion that the movie would be better off without the framing device. That's my opinion, and I think the main reason I think that is because there's one thing about the movie, and I kind of made a joke about it before. When you go to see a movie called Titanic, you kind of know how it ends, right? Like, we've talked about this with prequels and stuff before, where even if you don't know anything about Star Wars Episode One, and you haven't seen the trailer and you haven't read the interviews and you didn't read in Entertainment Weekly, you know that Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi aren't going to die. When you go into a movie called Titanic, you know the ship is going to sink. And by virtue of them having Old Lady Rose telling her story, now you also know that she lives. And I kind of feel like the story might have been more interesting if you didn't know if she was going to live or die. You know, like, you know, a lot of people are going to die, but you also know that some people do survive this catastrophe. I think that would have maybe helped also. And I know I sound like a broken record, but because they have that framing device and Rose is telling the story, there's a lot of voiceover that is her telling the story to the people on the boat. But that drives the narrative in 1912. And I think it kind of cheapens the story a little bit, like in the very, very beginning She, like, runs to kill herself, and that's obviously, like, a huge dramatic thing for this character, but, like, we only know that she's sad about her rich fiancé because we hear it in voiceover. You don't need that. Either we should see her being miserable in the 1912 footage, or we don't know why she's going to kill herself, and then we explore that through her relationship with Jack, which they kind of do, but... I feel like the voiceover and the framing narrative, none of it really worked for me. And I'm sure James Cameron's somewhere jotting down notes and saying, oh, thank you, random fucking podcast loser who's telling me how to make movies. You are not a random podcast loser. Aw, thank you. You're my podcast loser. Aw, that's the sweetest thing you've ever said to me. I'm only saying you're a loser compared to James Cameron in (laughs) his directing, making skills, or going to the bottom of uh, trenches skills. Fair. Also, just another thing I noticed watching it this week, there's a lot of foreshadowing in this movie. Again, similar to things that you see in prequels. Sometimes, you know, like there's like the cheeky line. Again, I'll go back to the Star Wars prequels where Obi-Wan says to Anakin, oh, Anakin, you'll be the death of me. And it's like, haha, that's funny because we know what really happens. A lot of people on Titanic 
or the Titanic, a lot of people on the Titanic are talking about how the Titanic is not going to sink. Not just like the captain and the shipbuilder, but it just comes up a lot. Like in dinner conversations, hey, you know what's not going to happen to this boat? It's going to sink. Yeah, definitely not going to sink. No sinking is going to happen. This ship is unsinkable. Unsinkable, you say? Unsinkable. I see what you're saying, and maybe they did say that, maybe they didn't. But I have to imagine when you sail across the ocean, it's incredibly risky. I mean, queens and kings have died uh, on ships. Like, this is something anyone can die. You generally don't think you're going to die on a ship today or on an airplane today. But if this was 1918 and you're flying across the Atlantic, you might die. So I think the fact that this was the industrial age, there's over-exaggerations of how uh, great the future is going to be. And they're going to say things like, we're going to eliminate death from boats. Like, this is not sinkable. What was it called? The white line? The white star line or something? something. Like that. There was a lot of marketing here. This was the maiden voyage. They make a point in the film of they tried to get to New York even faster. Why? They didn't need to get to New York a day early. They wanted the publicity of the maiden voyage getting there early. So, you know, did every person on the ship talk about it? Maybe not, but... I'll bet you that was the big deal, that they finally invented a ship that can't sink because everyone knew somebody who died on a ship, probably, especially if you live near the ocean. That's fair. I think there was just one too many mentions of it being unsinkable, where it's like, yes, I know, we all know it's going to sink. And speaking of it's going to sink, I love me some Victor Garber. He plays Thomas Andrews, the uh, designer of the Titanic. And when the people are like, it can't sink, it's an unsinkable ship. And his line is, it's made of iron, sir. I assure you, she can sink and she will be on the bottom of the Atlantic in an hour, two tops. Right. I just mentioned uh, this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about hackers. He was also on Eli Stone. That's what I know him from. I know he was also on Alias. Also, Rose bumps into this guy a lot, like five or six times. Like in the beginning, they're having dinner with him. And that makes sense because Rose and Cal are like rich VIP, basically. So they're going to be schmoozing with the captain and the shipbuilder and the ship architect and all of these other rich VIP. Fine. I get it. But like she just happens to randomly bump into him like a bunch of times later in the movie like as the ship is sinking when she's trying to find jack and like after she's found jack she just happens to keep bumping into him i was like this is a weird coincidence it's also a nice relationship because a lot of people don't treat rose with respect because she is just a woman and this is 1912 and there's a lot of sexism going around and the men talk to the men the men don't really have a serious conversation with a woman But he does. He treats her as a woman who knows her shit, understands what's happening, and he's on the level with her. So it is a nice relationship that they have. I think it's also that they're nouveau riche. They're kind of marrying into it because there's a difference in the way they treat her versus like uh, Kathy Bates' character. No, Kathy Bates is new money, and that's why they all look down on her. Oh, no, I'm sorry. sorry. Um, You're absolutely right. I do think that they treated um, Rose differently, though, because I guess like Kathy Bates, she was uh, the nouveau riche. No, I don't think she was. I think her family was rich. And the thing was that Her father died and left them with all this debt, so that's why Rose is marrying Cal. But I think her name is still associated with the old money, even though they don't really have it. 
Right, right, right. Because her mother was basically trying to keep the life she'd had. No, you're, you're correct there. Um, have you ever been on a cruise? I have been on a cruise. I thought it was fine. I think it was like when I was maybe a teenager and then maybe again when I was like 21. It's been a long, long time. I've only been on one cruise. But the reason I say this is because when you're on a ship for a while, you start to see the same people. So especially if these people were confined to the first class area, there's only one dining room. It's not like a modern ship where there's seven dining rooms and, you know, six different restaurants. They see the same people over and over. So I think that it would be likely that they'd almost kind of boringly see the same people and they can't hang out with the, uh, the lower class. That's uh, you know, much more uh, outnumbering them. Well, that leads us to the lower class boy, Jack meeting the upper class woman, Rose. And the love story is really what drives the movie. The love story is really what got uh, Amanda, your sister, really into it and all of her friends and why they went to see it five times. What did you think of the love story? I thought the love story was fine. I'm more drawn to the second half, the uh, amazing adventure that that happens there, um, the spectacle, the the way humans treat other humans in in moments of panic, the way Cal acts. I thought the first half of the film was interesting, more of the classism mm-hmm. struggle. I thought that was very interesting. I liked the scene when uh, when Rose gets to go below the deck and they're having that good time. I thought that was fun. The love story was fine. I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was great. It, it was perfectly fine. I tend to agree with you that the love story was fine. I think it's elevated because of Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. Not only are they great actors on their own, which they are, but they also have great chemistry together. So you buy their love story. To me, I think their love story is kind of like Romeo and Juliet. And I think it's also supposed to be. Apparently, that's how James Cameron pitched it, is like Romeo and Juliet on the set of The Biggest Disaster or something like that. But it's like Romeo and Juliet in that sometimes people say, oh, Romeo and Juliet, theirs was the greatest love ever. And it's like, have you read the play? Because not really. They're like teenagers who fall in love and sleep together and are together for what, like a couple days a week maybe before they die? The whole story takes place over three days and they're like 14 or 15 years old. Right. And so Jack and Rose... Also, it's like an intense love affair between two very young people. I think they're older, right? Like she's 17 and he's 20 or something like that. They're together for three days, three and a half days at at most. They have an intense relationship and it changes her. It changes the trajectory of her life. But calling it the greatest love is like, eh, not so much. One of the things that uh, people have talked about for years, you know, there's something that Jack says to Rose. He says, as he's kind of on this door, we'll talk about the door in a moment, but uh, as he's lying on the door floating in the ocean, he says, I want you to promise me something that you're going to have a life and uh, no matter what happens. And she does. We see this uh, shot when uh, old Rose is uh, sleeping at the end. We see her through the years. She got older. She apparently, uh, you know, had a granddaughter, we know. And and we do kind of see these in in the uh, photographs. But the thing that's talked about a lot is that it's controversial whether or not old Rose dies at the end when she drops the heart of the ocean in the end and, uh, and her eyes are closed. But whether or not she's having her last moments in life or just sleeping... You know, if it is her last moment in life, she is not thinking of her late husband, 
her children, her grandchildren, or any of those other things, she is thinking of this guy that she met 80 years ago. And she even admits she doesn't have a picture of him. He only exists in her mind. And uh, you don't really know if she was dying or if she was just, she's above the Titanic. She's going to think of that guy. But um, it's almost like this is the most important two days of her life. See, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. I didn't know that it was like a controversial thing. And I was going to ask you about that, like what you thought that ending scene was, because the way I interpreted it was she dies in her sleep. That's what Jack says. You're going to die in your sleep, an old lady. And so she's back on the ocean above the Titanic. She dies in her sleep and then she is in heaven and then she is reunited with her long lost love in heaven. And that's why all of those other dead people are there and why Jack's there and they're on the Titanic and they're all clapping. And then it's like, well, that's a sweet reunion in the afterlife. But you know who is probably pissed? Her husband, who is maybe married to her for, I don't know, 60, 70 years. They don't really say, but like they had a life together. They had children together. They had grandchildren together, maybe great grandchildren. And now she's just reunited with the guy she slept with once when she was a teenager. And what's he supposed to do? Just like hang out in heaven alone? Well, it's interesting you say that because the last scene, it only has dead people in it. It doesn't have Kathy Bates. It doesn't have any of those people that survived. It has the captain. It has uh, Fabricio, uh, the friend of uh, Jack's that comes on the ship with him. It has all those people that had died. So it leads something to this might be the afterworld. Although, of course, I'm sure the Kathy Bates character is dead by then, too. Yeah, I was going to say that. Like, uh, all the people who survived the Titanic probably also died just of old age or whatever the hell else. Right. And they really had to stretch it for this film to be like, that would make her 103 years old. Someone has lived to 103, so go with it. Right, right. You know? And like you said, the 103-year-old is not flying on helicopter to the Northern Atlantic. Right, right, right. <laughs> that, that whole thing was weird. It's also a thing where she drops the diamond into the ocean at the end. It's like, you have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. That diamond could have, like, set them for life. I think her desire was to return it to the Titanic. Maybe she felt it wasn't really even hers. It kind of was accidentally given to her, even though Cal's a jerk. Like, um, why didn't she ever sell it? You're right. It, it could have changed her entire life, but, you know, she is a fictional character. <laughs> right. No, I know when her grandchildren are fictional characters too, but I'm just like, all right, if you don't want to sell it, fine. Just leave it to them in your will so that they can have it. And if they need to someday, they're set. Right. And you can make an argument, even though there's absolutely no evidence of it, Maybe this didn't happen. Maybe it was her dream. Maybe she didn't drop it in the ocean at the end. Whether or not that happened or not, I'm going to ask you this. Have you ever seen this absolute shit show of an alternate ending to the Titanic? No. There's an alternate ending? It doesn't sink? Yes, it sinks. Okay. But um, this is one of those things of, oh my God, James Cameron almost blew it. Like, this ending is so bad. They've kind of declared victory, even though they didn't find the heart of the ocean. Uh, you know, it's the end of their mission. And they've decided we're going home. They have a big party on the ship, uh, Bill Paxton's ship. And the daughter, who in the final cut is kind of flirty with Bill Paxton, and you're wondering if there's a little chemistry there. In the alternate ending, the two of them are hanging out, but they 
go and they see old Rose. She takes a step on the railing. The same shot that we see, you know, when she's alone and she drops the heart of the ocean in, they go, oh my God, because it does look like uh, she's going to jump at first. You don't know what she's going to do. And they run out there and they're like, no. And as they approach like 10 feet from her, she turns around and she's holding the heart of the ocean. And she goes, don't take another step or I'll drop it. Yes, this happens, Al. And the entire uh, crew comes out. Everyone's there. There's like 100 people. And she says something along the lines of, I thought of selling it and I couldn't because that's what Cal would have done. Something, something, something. Bill Paxton says, I understand it's yours and it's not about the money, but please, please, just for a moment, can I touch it? And she's holding it, dangling it over over the railing. And she goes... Okay. And she gives it to Bill Paxton. He's holding it in his hand. This is like the Hope Diamond, basically. Right. It's priceless. And he lets go of it and gives it back to her. And she drops it in the ocean as they watch. And you know what Bill Paxton's reaction is? What? He does that whole, like, looks up to the sky. His eyes are filled with water. And he's hysterically laughing. Okay, first off, yes, that is a very stupid ending. Second of all, though, now he knows exactly where it is. I was thinking, like, yes, you now bring a, a submersible down. and Or I was even thinking, like, why didn't one person, like, dive in right after she did and try, at least, to get it? And it's on YouTube. You don't have to, like, rent the DVD. Just watch it. One of the reasons he didn't go with it, not because it's god-awful, but because it puts a lot of the focus on Bill Paxton's character, who's not really the focus of the film. Because he's crying, and he learns his lesson, and he's like, yeah, it's not about him. Yeah, I mean, I think there's too much of the Bill Paxton character anyway. No disrespect to Bill Paxton. I like Bill Paxton as an actor, and I'm glad he got a payday, and he and James Cameron were friends, uh, the late Bill Paxton. You know, so I'm not saying that I wish he wasn't on the set and didn't get a payday, but I don't think his character is necessary at all. You brought it up earlier. We should talk about The Door. I know this has been debated endlessly, and I do think that after I watched this movie the first time on my ill-fated date, I think I turned to my date and was like, there was room for him on that thing. I don't know why, like, he just stayed in the ocean. But watching it the other day, it's like, it's clear that they both try to get on The Door and then... He can't and he rolls off and like it's not buoyant enough for both of them. Well, um, to be fair, uh, there was a Mythbusters episode and they were trying to figure out could Jack and Rose have survived. So they take a door that you could figure out the size of it. And they were able to get both of them on, particularly if they took their life vests and put them underneath the door on this episode. So you'd make a flotation device. That being said, James Cameron appeared on that episode and he says, all right, I should have just made the door smaller. Like, Jack had to die. He only cared about Rose surviving. So, yes, he admits that that particular door, the prop, would have been able to get the actors Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet on it. But the door that this is depicting was not big enough. That's fair. And I mean... It's fine. It doesn't really bother me. The thing that you said about putting the life vest underneath the door to make it more buoyant, it does make me think that Jack might have been able to figure that out because he's a poor guy. He goes from place to place. He draws pictures really well. But also, he has a pretty solid understanding of physics. Like, when they're on the ship that's sinking, he's like, 
all right, we're going to have to swim right away because the, the ship's going to suck us down as soon as it hits the water. So we're going to need to kick up. Like, how the hell does he know what happens when a giant ship sinks? That wouldn't be a thing he's lived through before. He just understands physics, I guess. So maybe he would have thought about putting the life vest under the door? Yeah, they could have put a throwaway line that he worked on a fishing ship and there could have been something. But um, I went to Saturday Night Live once uh, and only once. Uh, I went to see Samuel L. Jackson. I think it was winter of 97. And I still remember his sketch. It was about like the two black survivors of the Titanic. And basically, I think the premise was like no one paid attention to them. They were able to survive the, the sinking and they basically got all the dead white people floating in the end. They're like, oh, we tied them all together. We had so many of them. We even had a shuffleboard court. And like, oh, it, was, it was pretty funny. But um, does 1997's Titanic stand the test of time, Al? I have to say yes. It's an epic film. It is a beautifully shot movie. There are, I think, a couple of shots where you can tell that CG. You can clearly tell that that background doesn't quite match. It happens a couple of times. But overall, it's a beautiful movie. It has enough of all of the elements where it has like the love story and also the spectacle and also the tragedy and also the history enough where you can say, okay, I get why this combination of all of these things made it the number one movie. That said, I do think it is fair to criticize certain things like as we have, as I have. There is some really terrible dialogue in the movie. When the iceberg first hits the Titanic, do you know what Jack says? Um, no. He says, this is bad. Okay, great dialogue. Then when he's chained to the pipe, when Cal's like goon like chains him up and he sees that the ship is sinking, the room is flooding. He's chained to a pipe and he says, this could be bad. Yeah, I mean, he hedges his bets. He's not sure that it is bad. He just says it could be bad. And he says it to himself. Like, what the fuck is this dialogue? Some lines are pretty fucking cheesy and awful. There are a lot of lines that are really memorable. I'm king of the world. That's been quoted endlessly. I do also think there are some pacing problems, not just because it's long, but because they do some things where they really take their time with certain shots and certain story beats and some things they just rush right through. There's a point where Rose kind of rejects Jack and he's like, I want to see you. And she says, no, we can't ever see each other ever again because her mom had threatened her. Then in the very next scene, Rose is with her mom and she sees like another little girl who's being told to be prim and proper. And that makes her think of like, oh no, how terrible my life is. And then immediately she goes running back to Jack. And like those things happen in three consecutive scenes. It's like, you know, you could stretch that out. Let her have these realizations. Let her come to these conclusions and build up and they take time for her to make this realization. And it just is like, boom, boom, boom. You know, again, I'm criticizing the most successful director ever. He does not need to take my notes. I get it. But I do think it's fair to critique certain things. However, what about this movie doesn't stand the test of time? I don't know. I mean, I think it all pretty much works as well 25 years later as it did in 1997. So I'm going to say that, yeah, this movie does stand the test of time. That's a pretty easy verdict for me. What do you think, James? You know, to quote another director, Taylor Allison Swift, haters going to hate, 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 hate. <laughs> what did she direct? She directed uh, that uh, short film of hers, uh, All Too Well. Okay. And, and then they just announced she's directing a feature film. Oh, really? Yeah, for Searchlight. 
pictures. Good for her. Yeah, good for her. And Taylor Swift is already on her way to getting an EGOT. She already has an Emmy and several Grammys. So I believe she might be going for that Oscar. Oscar's a hard one. Yeah, well, you can direct a short film. There you go. Um, I think the Oscars got it right. I think the score wins, the director wins, the best picture wins. That year, uh, Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt, they won best actors. As good as it gets? That's it. And Robin Williams won for Goodwill Hunting. Kim Basinger, she won for LA Confidential. Actually, we saw every one of these. She beat Joan Cusack in In and Out. She beat Minnie Driver in Goodwill Hunting, Julianne Moore in Boogie Nights, and Gloria Stewart in Titanic. Okay. So, um, you know, I would say the, the acting was was great, uh, almost maybe overshadowed by everything else. But it's a fantastic film. It's James Cameron's uh, epic film. Could it have maybe chopped off the uh, present day stuff? I like the transition scene, so I really like that part, so I'm willing to take it but if it hadn't been it was just a period piece that was in the past it probably would have worked too but that's his choice i thought it was fine and you know mr cameron you've done it again james cameron just has a hard on for the ocean stuff the submersible stuff like the deep sea footage who is going to argue with him i actually i think there are stories with uh executives yelling at him and telling him he needs to cut stuff and he's like no i'm doing it my way damn it and you know he won every argument there was concern, you know, that the movie with its long runtime, there would be less showings. And so that means that the movie's going to make less money. They were doing midnight screenings till 3.30 in the morning. People went. So he was right. You know what um, song uh, My Heart Will Go On beat at the Oscars? No, what? It beat the song from Con Air. How does that one go? How do I live without you? I won't do no. And it wasn't the Leanne Rhymes version, right? It was the other version? Yeah, it was um, Trisha Yearwood, I think. Yeah, that sounds uh, about right. May- maybe. Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm glad we talked about Titanic. I feel like if we hadn't, it was just going to be a thing that we'd have to get to eventually. And now we did it. Yeah, and we can even have a series of movies that failed to beat Titanic. And number one, those are films to review. Leonardo DiCaprio failed to do it uh, with The Man in the Iron Mask. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what was finally able to beat Titanic. What? Lost in space. Really? Yes. Interesting. Interesting. There's more Leonardo DiCaprio movies. There's more Kate Winslet movies we'll, we'll have to watch. Did you watch Mayor of Easttown? No, I didn't. She was really good in that. In that show, Kate Winslet is the opposite of Rose. She's like eating sandwiches from Wawa in the middle of Pennsylvania. Really, really good show. And she's going to be in uh, Avatar 2. Well, she said that she was never going to work with James Cameron again unless she was paid a ton of money because, you know, James Cameron is notoriously difficult to work with. And I'm guessing she's getting a lot of money for Avatar 2. I'm sure she is. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, it's our Christmas episode, and we're going to do a different kind of Christmas movie, Bad Santa. I saw that movie once many years ago. I haven't seen it since. That'll be a good time to revisit that movie. In the meantime, of course, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can email us at testoftimepodcast at gmail.com. And uh, James, it has been a privilege podcasting with you tonight. That's what he says as they're like going to die when they're playing on the Titanic. That's right. That's right, Al. Was that a bad quote? Maybe I should have said, James... I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. That was the one. I picked the wrong quote. I picked the wrong one. The other one was more thematically appropriate. 
Oh man, I should have told you to draw me like one of your French girls. <laughs>